Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 19th, 2018. On this week's show, the New York Times' Mark Tracy will join us to talk about UMBC's historic win over Virginia and other NCAA tournament happenings. Dom Cosentino of Deadspin will also be here to discuss whether Kirk Cousins' fully guaranteed contract with the Minnesota Vikings will start a new trend in the NFL. And finally, we'll chat with sports writing legend Dave Kindred about how a high school girls basketball team in central Illinois saved his life. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. I think we should get right in. Oh, I should say hey. That was rude of me. I'm sorry. It's nice to hear from you, Stefan. Yeah. Uh, I, think we should, I think we should get right into the college basketball, because I think the, the small talk I would want to have with you is NCAA tournament related. And, and I so would hijack just... it and talk about how Penn really had a shot there against Kansas for a while. Yeah, maybe we should, maybe we should just get right into it. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> On January 21st, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County lost to its conference rival, Albany, 83-39. to it actually could have been worse than that. The Retrievers were losing that game 49-12 to with less than 17 minutes to go. A little less than two months later, UMBC became the first number 16 seed in the history of the men's NCAA tournament to beat a one seed, crushing the Virginia Cavaliers 74-54. to On Sunday night, the Retrievers turned into the dog equivalent of Pumpkins, Losing 50 to 43 to Kansas State. But I don't care who cuts the nets down in San Antonio. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County, won the whole goddamn NCAA tournament on Friday night. Joining us now from Charlotte, the site of UMBC's historic upset win and non historic, non upset loss, is the New York Times' Mark Tracy. Hey, Mark. Hey, uh, I would dispute one thing. I think it was a historic loss. It was the very first time a number 16 seed has lost to a number nine seed. Fair play, sir. I think uh, that's right. I mean, after watching that game, I would hesitate to say in a vacuum <laughs> that there was anything historic about it. The quality of play was not sterling. But I no, want to start no. with uh, with Friday, um, with the Cubs winning the World Series a few years ago. The 16 over a 1 was really one of the last big sports things that hadn't happened. The 16s yeah. were 0-135 when UNBC took the court against Virginia. And then after a flurry of three-pointers and drives by 5'8", 132-pound point guard K.J. Mora and acrobatic layups from senior Jairus Lyles, they were 1 and 135. Going in, I think we all would have said that for a 16 seed, beating a number one would be amazing and more than enough, given that it had never happened before. Seeing it happen anyway at all would be incredible. 
But Mark, what's going to stick with me about that game isn't the fact that UMBC won. It's how they won, how exuberant it was, and how they were clowning the best team in the country. The best team in the country who, like, all the, like, best teams of the ACC couldn't beat. Like, I was at, um, I was at, you know, I live in Brooklyn, so I, I get ACC tournament duty, which is, which was the Barclays Center, so I would walk to, to the tournament every day, and it was great. And, I mean, I saw them beat, you know, UNC, and I, I saw them beat, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was they beat the day before. It was some, obviously, ACC power. And, you know, I mean, teams couldn't get around them, and everyone kind of knew that, like, look, like, they weren't the single most talented team on the planet, um, but they, it's not like they weren't talented at all. Like, I think that kind of got lost. Like, I mean, it is the University of Virginia. It, it, they were a number one seed. They did only lose two games. Like, you know, they had this system, and, like, to beat them by 20 points is ridiculous. Like, there are two other losses this season were on the road at West Virginia, which, you know, West Virginia is probably the most high-variance team in the major conferences, you know, they can, they can kill you or, they, or you can kill them. Uh, and then uh, overtime to Virginia Tech, you know, their rival, literally in overtime, which is, you know, there's some ratings that literally consider overtime games to be just ties uh, because, you know, once, once you get to overtime, anything can happen. Uh, Stefan, there was something really, like, supernatural about that game on Friday. How did you feel watching it? It, was, it felt inevitable. And afterward... Reading the postmortems, you know, everyone was trying to make sense of how, oh, this wasn't as surprising as it looks. Virginia was vulnerable because of the way they play basketball, because they yeah, were blah, so blah, reliant blah. on defense. <laughs> uh, UMBC is a prototypical team that can have success if they make a lot of threes, if they spread the floor. But they had like a five foot three, 125 pound <laughs> point guard. It was crazy to watch. And as the second half progressed, it was one of those. It wasn't even like, do you believe in miracles? Because it felt like a foregone conclusion after about eight minutes of the second half. That's what was so remarkable. And I think then if you roll in who UMBC is as an institution, it becomes even more remarkable. I mean, I have been on UMBC's campus to play in Scrabble tournaments. It is a bunch of concrete buildings just off of I-95. This is a school that was effectively designed in the 1960s to give African-Americans and other minorities an opportunity for a higher education. And it has become a a pretty impressive place in terms of the number of MD-PhDs and PhDs that it produces among African-Americans in the sciences. So there's a really good story there. But I think half the nation would have been hard-pressed. Half? 80%? 90% would have been hard-pressed to identify what UMBC stood for before Friday's game. Mark, you went to the campus the day after the win, and your story was, like, hilarious. I don't know if it was hilarious for you in the process of reporting, but it was hilarious for me as a reader how unable you were to find people on campus. At who, Which I knew. Well, I literally knew it was to, spring break. It was spring break. But, but still, still, like, even the even the people that you found were like, yeah, yeah I guess cool. there's a, there, uh, yeah, I got to study. Leave me alone. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and it was, like, all grad students. Yeah, there were grad students. There were actually one of the people I talked to was, you know, and I really did, you know, they see this not wrongly as their moment in the sun, as they should. You know, that's that's what this is all about, right? Um, and so they arranged for me to meet one student who is their first Rhodes Scholar, which, you know, I don't, I don't blame them. And actually, she was wonderful and, and great, and I'm glad and she's in the article, and I'm glad I talked to her. Um, but I also wanted to get random students. So I was like, and I asked her, I was like, where can we find students? And she was like, well, the library. <laughs> and so we went to the library and, and, 
you know, canvas just uh, just the people who happen to be there. And yeah, I mean, this is not it's not going to be a jock school. Um, it's not going to be like Boston College after Foodie or whatever. Like it's just not not going to happen. And they, and that's fine. And they really do actually take. I'm not surprised to hear you're there for a Scrabble tournament because they take the intellectual sports very seriously. They're six-time national chess champions. Uh, the cyber defense collegiate competition. They are about 20 minutes from NSA headquarters, and uh, I'm told that they are a, a national security agency feeder. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what UMBC is. The president of UMBC, Freeman Rabowski, wrote an essay that was published in The Atlantic over the weekend. And if you uh, ignore the first three or four paragraphs where he is, talks about basketball in a terrible way, about how this was about true grid and hard yeah. work and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story. And if you want a school that truly integrates academics with athletics in a way that you don't feel disgusting after watching them. This was a great story. Um, I was reminded um, more than any other game. There's a a lot of comparisons being made. Obviously, this is unprecedented, but you've got Lehigh over Duke, Norfolk State over Missouri, Coppin Coppin State State, over South South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, that was the game. Well, I'm going to mention another one, but that was the Uh game that first came to mind for me. Um, that was 1997, a uh, historically black college, beat a number two seed, South Carolina. They were 30-point underdogs, and they won by 13. Like, that was yeah. one of the rare, huge upsets in the tournament. But the game that really, um, I, I think, is the closest analog was, and it wasn't just a single game, it was Florida Gulf Coast, in 2013, um, especially in that first round game against Georgetown. And that was, I mean, I don't know if your numbers are right, Stefan, but I would wager that fewer people had heard of Florida Gulf Coast than had heard of UMBC. Um, and they have had really have really had that fluty effect where they've had applications go up and they had people from like far away be interested in going to Florida Gulf Coast because it like seemed cool because they were like dunking a lot and it's on the water. But like in that game, you had this school that nobody had heard of and guys just like dunking all over this higher ranked, um, you know, basketball school and watching the game. You just have this feeling of who are these guys? Where do they come from? How are they able to do this? And it just doesn't look like a traditional upset where like somebody's making a three at the buzzer and like winning 52 to 51 or something. Watching that game, like, uh, you know, especially once it was the second half, you know, I was started emailing with my editor, started getting a piece up. Uh, I'd kind of written a column on Virginia that we decided to hold until they lost, which we assumed would be, you know, if ever, you know, sometime in the second weekend. Uh, and uh, at one point he was like, you know, also, you should plan on getting to UMBC if this holds, which it will. And I was like, wow. Like, yeah, I mean, they're up, like, a lot of points. <laughs> like, if, if this were literally any other kind of matchup, I'd be like, this game is over. Um, although, of course, then we saw yesterday, you know, Cincinnati, Nevada, whatever. So, you know, anything can happen in March. But, I mean, they were so dominant. Uh, it wasn't fluke they were up by that. Like, they so clearly outplayed Virginia. And I'm still, I think we're still still figuring it out. But um, although I think we'll probably, I don't. It'll be interesting to see how much staying power UMBC has in like mainstream tournament coverage going forward. Um, I mean, the left side of your bracket currently has Kansas State number nine against Kentucky number five, Loyola Chicago number eleven, 
against Nevada, seated seventh. The right side of the bracket is one, two, three, five, Villanova. Right, the right side of the bracket. West Virginia, Texas stacked. Tech, Purdue. Yeah. So it is stacked. But that left side of the bracket, you know, you could have another George Mason situation with oh, a, yeah. with a oh, very yeah. low oh, yeah. seed Absolutely. making a Final Four, or Kentucky benefiting from everybody getting upset and Calipari getting back to the Final Four with a bunch of freshmen. Oh yeah, I mean, be ready for it. It's 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 going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like the Loyola Chicago situation. It, it sort of points up how remarkable UMBC is in a strange way because Loyola Chicago is an amazing story. Um, it's a school that has a kind of storied history in the NCAA tournament with um, the team with uh, you know mostly black roster um, winning it all and how historic that was before Texas Western. Um, they have this kind of upperclassman laden team with like a really strong regular season and they've won right. at the very end of these close games on amazing shots. And that's like totally normal. That's like what happens every year. There's like, right. I mean, not the part about the, you know, st- the storied history, but the like upperclassman laden roster from a small conference that like wins a, a tight game. Um, and then you have like sister Jean. There's, a, there's always like a sister right. Jean character. There's always mm-hmm. like some, you know, team like what, you know, inspirational figure or whatnot and what UMBC done there's no precedent for it there's no rubric for it um and so I feel like if Loyola Chicago does make the final for it like oh yeah like George Mason right oh, yeah, this, like this, VC this, like VCU the sister Jean yeah. of of UMBC was the dude running the Twitter feed I mean oh my god I, wasn't like... I, I literally went up to him in the locker room it was like I'm such a fan I literally did that <laughs> I literally literally which ordinarily as a reporter you don't want to do I, I made an exception yeah, and Loyola Chicago, I mean, again, to, to paint the, the contrast, uh, UMBC didn't exist in 1963 when Loyola Chicago, field, fielding a, a, a team of predominantly black players, won the NCAA championship. Um, I mean, this is a, that was a, a, a history-making and precedent-shattering occurrence. I mean, that yeah. game was remarkable. There was a really interesting thread, I thought, from a guy named Brett Kariminos about the high variance strategy that UMBC right. and um, Marshall played and went and winning against Wichita State in the first round. And we'll link to the thread on our show page. But he does a really good job of laying out how it's not just let's shoot a bunch of threes, that there's actually like an offensive system in place, whether you know it's by um, Odom from UMBC or by Dan D'Antoni from Marshall about the ways in which you can spread the floor, run pick and roll, and do it in such a way that if you have one or two really good players as a small school, that you can free them up. And so it's like those particular guys who are getting these high-quality you know, three-point looks and how that allows um, a team like UMBC or like Marshall to have an opportunity against a bigger school by just shooting so many three-pointers. And if they go in, as they do against... Uh, you know, as they did against Virginia, then you have a decent chance of winning. Now, this thread was written before the games of Sunday, mm-hmm. and what we saw with Marshall against West Virginia and UMBC against Kansas State is when that strategy doesn't work, it's really, really ugly. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could you could look at it a bunch of different ways. I think it's to the credit of those those schools and those uh, programs to be willing to like be embarrassed. I think you want to increase your chance 
of winning at the expense of like losing really miserably. And I think, you know, we've seen in football a lot, like coaches will not do something that, you know, risks making them look stupid. Right. But you're saying you think that in college basketball teams are going to learn to do that. Well, I think they have to learn to do that, don't they, Mark? Because otherwise, what's the point? If you're a 13, a 14, a 15, or a 16 seed and you go into the tournament with a strategy that's designed to have you lose the game 82 to 67 – you're not gaining anything, and it's just bad basketball. I think you have to win your conference, and while that also is a single elimination tournament, you know, unlike in the NCAA tournament where you will always be the underdog, you could conceivably enter your conference tournament as a favorite, and that is statistically, you know, a better thing to be. Obviously, you know, the favorites win more often than not. Uh, you know, the the so-called underdog strategy, if that's that might be a, a Malcolm Gladwell neologism, um, you know, the so-called underdog strategy is for underdogs. You know, it's uh, you know, so let's say let's say it was Vermont uh, who really was very good this year. Um, you know, probably would have been a, a, a 13 seed mm-hmm. or maybe a 14 seed uh, had they made the tournament, had they not been buzzer beaten by UMBC at their own place. I, I didn't, frankly, watch Vermont this year, but I would wager they did not play in an underdog-style way. They were the favorites of their conference, and they dominated their conference. But now you get to the your Vermont, you get to the NCAA tournament. You know, you can't change the entire way you play. You can make certain tactical decisions going into a game that are higher variance, and, and certainly they should. But, like, you can't fundamentally become a different team overnight. Well, except, so except, for, except for the point that, that this guy Brett Cormenos was making in his Twitter thread, which is that that's not just a high variance way for an underdog to play. It's the way everybody sure. should play. I mean, efficiency right. has won. This is how right. you should be playing basketball, particularly college basketball with a shorter three-point line and a much greater variability in the talent that's on the court at any right. given time. Right. And the three-point line, by the way, is, if you see it in person, extremely short. And they even moved it back a decade ago, and it's still extremely short. The thing that I find really interesting, and I haven't seen a great explanation of it is that the um, dynamic between college football and the NFL is one in which college programs and coaches are incredibly innovative in terms of play calling and style of play, and that that kind of trickles down to the NFL incredibly slowly, whether it's just by, um, you know, the, the league finally deciding as a collective that like right. okay maybe we should like you know do a little bit more hurry up or may it sometimes there's like a gate crasher like like chip kelly whereas right. in college basketball the innovation it seems comes more from the nba which is really oh, odd yeah. like in college it makes no sense that um you know you have the houston rockets that are going to shoot more threes than than twos with the long three-point line obviously they have incredibly good three-point shooters, but in college, shouldn't there be, like, a, a crap load of teams that are doing that? And they really aren't. Um, but I think, Mark, you made a really good point about this underdog strategy because Marshall wasn't um, the regular season champ in their conference either. Middle Tennessee State mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. And so that's really fascinating to think about the dynamic of the majority, you know, the super-duper majority of their season takes place not under the bright lights of, you know, March Madness and in order to get it there and and have this moment and this opportunity to win this this game, you need to win 
a lot of games over, you know, teams that might be trying to underdog you. And so just the the notion of like being adaptable um, is not one we really think about when it comes to these like 16 seeds or 13 seeds that we only see once a year. <laughs> we, we talk about it among the top few seeds. Um, let's talk about Virginia just for a second before you go. Um, yeah. It was actually, it wasn't certainly predicted that this was going to happen. People were talking no. about Pan over Kansas, people like Stefan Fatsis. Yes. But Ken Pomeroy, who is the statistical guru of college basketball, I you know, saw him tweet before this game that Virginia's historically like not great performance in the NCAA tournament under Tony Bennett, he believes is not a coincidence or not just bad luck, that it's a product of them playing very slowly and allowing other, you know, if the the slower you play, if you're a better team, the, you know, less opportunities you're going to have to create a big scoring margin. So this wasn't something that just came totally, totally out of the blue. Totally. And I mean, I wrote that too. And like, yes, I mean, everything you just said, and you know, I don't know what the solution is. It's not like Tony, Tony Bennett's not a moron, uh, Tony Bennett, Virginia's coach. He's not a moron. Like he knows that he wants to compete in the ACC and in fact go, uh, you know, 31 and two while playing in the ACC. uh, And he's not going to out recruit Duke uh, for the foreseeable future. He's probably never going to out recruit UNC. This is the way to do it. He has proud fans who want to succeed despite obstacles. and, And this is the way to do it. So, you know, this is not, um, you know, this is not a definitive reflection on him. But, like, yeah, now it's been five years um, when they've been really one of college basketball's best regular season teams, and they've fallen short in the tournament. And those five years, they've gone out before the Final Four all five years. Only one of those years, it was actually last year, were they not upset. You know, they were in, last year they were a number five seed uh, who lost to, I think, a number four seed in the second round. Um, other than that, they've been a one or two seed, and they've been upset. Yeah, they were missing their sixth man, yeah. uh, DeAndre Hunter, who a lot of people say is their actually their best player. But Stefan, once you like start making <laughs> excuses as a one seed for why yeah. you lost by twenty points, you've kind of already lost. You've lost the argument when you're when you're arguing with the FBI while under a federal investigation and arguing about losing to a sixteen seed. You've already lost. Speaking of the FBI, all those teams seem to have been eliminated from uh, from the tournament. Conspiracy? I don't know. Well, maybe. Karma? Yeah. I mean, we talked about this last week, Stefan, but I think the note that I'd like to leave on here is just the NCAA tournament, to say something incredibly banal, is such an amazing product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Independent of anything that you might think or believe about the NCAA. It is so, so good. And I was just blown away by how little I thought about what a massive nightmare the NCAA is during the games. And it's just, this is why the NCAA and why college basketball is allowed to continue to exist going to die. the way that it does. Yeah, it's unkillable in its in yep. its current form. Um, and there are going to be tweaks and there are going to be changes. But ultimately, when the tournament starts, you don't really think about them. I certainly didn't think about them much either over the weekend, Josh. Um, you know, I was watching DeAndre Ayton and sort of marveling at how is this guy losing um, <laughs> versus, you know, did he take $100,000 or not? And if he did, great, good for him. Uh, all right, we didn't talk about the Michigan buzzer beater against Houston. Nevada, 22-point comeback. 
we did mention Loyola Chicago, but just amazing, amazing tournament. Mark Tracy writes about college basketball for The New York Times. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks so much. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to NFL free agency, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment, for Slate Plus members, Dom Cosentino, who's going to talk to us about the NFL just uh, in one second here, is going to go over some conundrums with us. One of the ones that we'll discuss is what if there was tackling in golf? It's a question we've all pondered. We'll get into it uh, on the Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear that, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Quarterback Kirk Cousins finally got the hell out of Washington. Good for him. Also good for him is that he will receive every one of the 84 or so million dollars that the Minnesota Vikings have agreed to pay him over the next three seasons. That is a very big deal in the National Football League, which does not like to make contractual promises on which it cannot renege. Dom Cosentino of Deadspin wrote about the impact of the Cousins deal last week. He's also the author of recent posts, including Blake Bortles gets one more year to prove he doesn't totally suck and an interview with a good boy in which he talked to a Labrador retriever. Congrats on that, Dom, and welcome to the show. Thank you. That was certainly a career highlight to uh, interview a dog. I have to say. Yeah, we might, we might talk about that some more later. Uh, on Twitter, though, Doug Baldwin, the Seattle wide receiver, called Kirk Cousins a hero for all the young players that will follow after him. Is this fully guaranteed contract precedent setting? And if so, how? I think it's hard to say at this point, to be perfectly honest, because quarterbacks in the league, especially those in the top 10, 12 group, get effective guarantees for their deals anyway. Teams typically don't let their quarterbacks get away if they're pretty good, uh, Washington being the obvious exception here. Um, so, you know, get, if, if the precedent's going to be set, it will take an Aaron Rodgers type or another star quarterback to insist on that, you know, but whether that will carry over. And the reason quarterbacks can do that is because there's a scarcity of, of quality quarterbacks around the league. Um, so, you know, there's a real demand for their services. They're not as replaceable as players at other positions. And the way the game's played now, they're not taking the kind of hits that maybe they did in the past that put their bodies at risk. So we're seeing guys playing into their late 30s, even 40s now. Um, so I, we're going to have to – we're still waiting to see a, a defensive player or a player at another position have this kind of leverage – uh, to be able to get a deal like this, because it would have to be a shorter deal. You notice that Cousins just got the three years, um, you know, and and perhaps even less in terms of a, a overall money across the, the the length of the contract. So, I, I'd still like to see another player at another position get it before I could say that, that that a precedent would be set. Yeah, I find that totally convincing. I mean, you said that in your piece. Kevin Clark said it on the Ringer. Um, I still think that. Um, 
it sort of expl- expands the Overton window. Right. Right. <laughs> in the NFL, I was just looking if I could make a clever pun. There is, in fact, a Matt Overton, who is a long snapper on the Jaguars, who will clearly not benefit right. from the, the fact that Kirk Cousins getting guaranteed money. The long snapper is probably the like exact opposite of the quarterback in terms of scarcity. Maybe not. Maybe like the, there is a no, there is a actually pop, not. Maybe maybe, there, maybe Matt Overton will in fact benefit from the Kirk Cousins deal. But the thing that's so interesting about the lack of guaranteed contracts in the NFL, and you wrote about this in a really great piece last year, is that it's as much a cultural right. thing as it is like. Yeah a product of the league rules like people often ask the question why aren't nfl contracts guaranteed like they are in baseball and like in other sports and the answer as you wrote is just because they aren't right they never have been if there's never been and the owners have never been pressured into doing it and, and, and what's what was interesting in that pc reference that i wrote last year it is that there's nothing to prevent anyone from from bargaining for a guaranteed contract it's not in the rules that they can't happen it's just that the players have never had the leverage to insist on them and the owners are not willing to do that at least across a five-year deal where you know the 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 way the collective bargaining agreement is written the owners would have to you know eat a significant portion of that money if a player sustained a devastating injury or something like that and that's why i think it's not as precedent setting for other positions yet because the, of the the, the the risk is still placed on ownership if they were to give a fully guaranteed deal across a longer contract to a player in a position other than quarterback. But let's also be clear here. What's happened is that management has leveraged this advantage, the built-in advantage, the cultural advantage in which these players for their whole lives, really, have been yelled at by coaches in this sort of military discipline style environment and been told what to do every second of their professional lives. So that's part A. Part B is that management takes that and it grafts it onto the collective bargaining agreement. The 2011 collective bargaining agreement um, gave management enormous leverage, and management has pushed that leverage. They've created new sorts of contract um, styles and, and stipulations, injury splits where players are denied their full pay for the season if they get injured. There are other anti-player clauses in contracts now, like per-game bonuses, Um you don't get paid the full amount unless you play in, in your unless you're rostered and on the sidelines um, for 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 a number of games. Um, so it's not just that this is always the way it's been. It's that management has recognized that and then pushed its advantage even further. Right. I mean, I, I think you, you you hit it right on the head that you know, the per game roster bonuses. There's there's contracts that automatically void. I mean, you know, Nick Foles' last deal in Kansas City automatically was going to void before. Uh, you know, he wound up in Philadelphia last year. It's like so, an Inspector Gadget contract, right? You know, <laughs> it will um, self-destruct right, after right. one season. So, you know, but but we we clearly still don't have. You know, and, 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 and Drew Brees just signed a deal last week for below market value to help the Saints. I mean, that that's the mentality. Gets back to the mentality question. He signed for two years at fifty million, and he he really could have had them over a barrel if he wanted at this point in his career. Um, but especially with their cap situation too. But he he gave them some help, and uh, you know, you still have players willing to do that because of the attitude and in, in the you know the way they're the way they're programmed to a degree. It's really fascinating how in the NBA as well. It's really in these salary cap sports how the money and the contracts just is entirely fake. Mm-hmm. Like the reported value of the contract is always fake and it's always typically exaggerated because mm-hmm. it makes 
the agent look right. better. Pushed by uh, an agent. Yep. Um, but and we see, we're seeing less of that in the NFL these days. The reporters are getting smarter, but there's still going to be the incentives there. And it's still often the case. I mean, Dom, you wrote about this with the Richard Sherman contract, where it's just impossible to know how much the contract is worth because it's so incentive laden. But it's, you know, I think we need to like step back and realize as fans and as consumers of the game, how much the collective bargaining agreement and the salary cap rules have created the way that these contracts are structured. And like when guys get five or six year deals um, when the back half isn't guaranteed, it's entirely because of salary cap gymnastics, because you can spread out the value of the contract over six years and have a, a lower salary cap hit so you can sign more players. But it's all the, the money in the cap for each year. It's not real. The money assigned to the individual mm-hmm. players isn't real. And it does give teams and players some like flexibility. And maybe there's some something there's some value in that. But I would think that, you know, maybe except for ownership for all parties, having a more a more rational system or a system that was more based on on real money mm-hmm. would be better for everyone. That's what's significant about the, the biggest significant thing about the Cousins deal. And I didn't touch on it in the piece I wrote last week, but in the one more in the, the one last year is that there's something called a fully funding rule in the NFL, which mandates that any fully guaranteed money in a contract has to be placed into escrow by the team up front. And owners now, now this this rule had a purpose 30, 40, 50 years ago when owners really were kind of like ruffling through the couch cushions to pay players. That's not the case anymore. And they've still used that, though, as an excuse to avoid largely paying any contracts beyond with any guaranteed money beyond two years. So does all the $84 million have to be an escrow now? Yes. Oh, my yes. God. Yes, that's what's significant <laughs> about this, because owners would, you, yeah. would typically say that they couldn't do that. Clearly, they can. Yeah. That's wow, what this that's, is exposed. So I, that's interesting. And it's really in, it's incumbent on the union to change this entire system, mm-hmm. I think, at this point, to use what's happened with Kirk Cousins and to lobby aggressively in during the next collective bargaining agreement to change some of these archaic rules. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the, the culture of the NFL doesn't change until some of those rules get changed. Because what really is remarkable to me, Dom, is that you see people come out and say, people that are closely affiliated to the NFL, former players, and say guaranteed contracts would be bad. Matt Burke, former lineman with the Vikings, um, was quoted in a story in the Minneapolis Star Tribune last week saying that if we had guaranteed contracts in the NFL, I don't think our game would be as great as it is because it's just human nature. If you know you're getting paid no matter what, I think some guys won't put forth the effort. There's only so much money to go around. This guy went to Harvard. Yeah, that guy uh, needs to be. I, that guy needs astounding. to be. That guy needs to be launched into the sun. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I mean, Mike Florio. Mike Florio has had the you know the lawyer who runs Pro Football Talk has had the same take that uh, that, that having guaranteed contracts would change the NFL. It wouldn't be a meritocracy anymore. Meritocracy. Ross Tucker, another former player. What would be the financial motivation for any player that knows he is on his last contract to play with a serious injury? I love this idea that the well, NFL... shouldn't be playing with a serious injury anyway. <laughs> right, right. But I, but I love this idea that the <laughs> so NFL is, get is some kind of meritocracy when it, the, 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 the entire coaching oh, and, and front office ranks are populated by fail sons. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, how many, Brian Schottenheimer just got another job. I mean, how does that happen in, in, in a, merit, a true meritocracy? You know? Yeah, I mean, that floor... Florio thing from 2015 is one of the dumbest 
things that's ever been on Pro yeah. Football Talk, which is really like a remarkable achievement. Saying a lot. But um, just how stupid, I don't think Mike Florio is stupid, but how stupid do you have to be to not understand that the NFL, even if you like exclude Brian Schottenheimer from the argument, if if you don't understand that there are guys on rosters strictly because they're on good contracts mm-hmm. and like veterans get cut rather than, you know, teams paying them more. It is not a meritocracy. Sports isn't a meritocracy like in in baseball, in basketball, like the rookie deal where guys are per the CBA massively underpaid based on the value mm-hmm. That they give teams is like a linchpin of roster construction, right. and you know this. That is why you know teams don't want to guarantee paying money to like veteran guys or or anyone. They want to you know have as little on the books as possible, mm-hmm. so they don't um, you know have these these salary commitments that like if a guy gets hurt or if a guy his production drops, they just want to be able to get rid of them and take on no risk. Yeah, And they also want to maintain the culture of insecurity that dominates in NFL locker rooms, that you know that you can be cut at any moment. Right, right. And in, 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 to expand on what Josh said, that, that rookie pay scale is low enough, too, that it incentivizes teams. And they know that, you know, why pay the veteran corner, like a Richard Sherman, $11 million when, you know, the draft's coming up and you can draft a a guy seven, eight, nine years younger, um, fresher, and pay him a you know a slotted salary, you know, and, and that has that has the impact of, of affecting everything else. That you know, the, on one hand, the argument was, well, we need the rookie wage scale so that Sam Bradford's not crushing the team's salary cap with a fifty million dollar contract before he's played a snap. But on the uh, the flip side of that now is that the way it's affecting veterans down the road and making them much more expendable and replaceable. All right, two things before we go. Um, hopefully you know the answer. I don't know the answer to this, but um, do, given the, the current system, do draftees have any leverage around pushing for guaranteed money? Because I was trying to think, all right, I think we can all agree and stipulate that like somebody like Aaron Rodgers would have the leverage here. But like the other place in which guys have leverage is when they are like immediately coming into the league and teams do not want you know, the number one overall pick, you know, whether it's like Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen or whoever it's going to be this year, they don't want that guy to like sit out the whole year. Mm -hmm. Could somebody like that push for guaranteed money or are they like locked in in such a way that it's not possible? They're locked in, but interestingly, the the first round picks, the top 20 or so, do get fully guaranteed deals for the four years. Oh, so it's all guaranteed? Yes. They're they're the one group that has had them. I think that was the the concession that management made in, 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 in creating this scale was that the first round picks, it, it it's negotiable, but typically it's been about the top 20, 22 that have gotten fully guaranteed across four years. And the second rounders, I think, get guarantees into year two, typically. But three through seven have almost no leverage, and are you know I don't think any of their money is guaranteed whatsoever. All right. I sounded dumb there, but let's leave it in because sometimes I'm dumb, <laughs> and the, the audience needs to know that. My last question was, if we're talking about um, expanding what is possible here. What should Aaron Rodgers do or what could Aaron Rodgers do to maybe even go beyond what Kirk Cousins did? Would it be asking for more years or is is there something I'm not thinking of? You know, it's an interesting question because at this stage in his career, 
what would he want to do? Because it, it, another advantage to for a quarterback, and this is where the quarterbacks have leverage in a shorter deal, is that he can go get a new contract in another year, two years, three years out, as opposed to five years. So it, you know, right. And, and Kirk Cousins is only going to be thirty-two right. when this current contract expires after three years. Right. So th- does Rodgers want to go that route and and, and seek a, a a guarantee with a shorter deal that allows him to 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 renegotiate again when the cap has risen and his value will be that much greater, you know, or does he want the security? Does he want to be a team guy, um, you know, and, and, and kind of lock himself into a, a five-year deal that where, you know, it, it's going to, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be earning less than he ought to within another year or two as other guys continue to get more deals. Matt Ryan, Ben Roethlisberger, you know, other, other quarterbacks will, will be up for contracts in the next year or two like that be interesting to see how they play it out. I don't know that there's an easy answer to it, though, because it might depend on what that player wants because, they, you know, there's guys in their 30s, you know, who have earned a lot of money already at this point, and, you know, maybe they're, they want to, quote-unquote, chase the championship and, and uh, you know, help the team. And that, that, that's, that's the problem. Tom Brady still playing at $16 million a year is a problem, and I don't know why the union doesn't address that. Dom Cosentino writes for Deadspin. Dom, thanks a lot. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our next guest is a sports writer who covers the Morton, Illinois High School Lady Potters basketball team. Amazing team. Three state championships in the last four years. In addition to his beat work in Morton, you may know him as a former columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Washington Post, the National Sports Daily, and the Sporting News, or from the shelf of books that he's written over the last five decades or from the Penn ESPN Lifetime Achievement Award for Literary Sports Writing that he received just last month. He is Dave Kindred, and he is with us now. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be with you guys. Thank you. Dave, after reading about your gig in a lovely profile by Tony Rahagen for ESPNW, I was searching for some analogy for what you're doing sort of like as if Barack Obama decided to run for town council in rural Hawaii. But really, but really, it's just as if Dave Kindred decided to cover the local girls' basketball team. You've been doing this for seven years now. You've written more than 200,000 words about these girls. Tell us how you wound up doing this instead of heading off to Wichita for the first round of the NCAA tournament this week. I started doing it eight years ago because a friend's daughter was on the team. I wanted to go see her play. She'd been in my sister's kitchen one time with my sister, her mother, and a third woman, all of whom had been cheerleaders. And so someone asked this young girl, 12 or 13, name was Carly Crocker, if she was going to be a cheerleader. She looked around and said, no, I'm going to be the one they cheer for. Well, she had me at no, so I went to watch them play and have never stopped watching them. You know, it's, I think I've been the 269 of their 274 games in this time. It's up to 300,000 words now. You know, and I get paid a box of milk duds every game. Uh, that's 
Just you know, in this in this economy, Dave, you it's can't more, you can't really argue with that it's salary. It's also it's more than the NCAA players are getting paid, so you're doing okay. It's more than I got paid at some of my 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 most recent jobs too. So, in your most recent uh, blog post, the last one of the season, this was after a rare event. It was after the team lost, um, you know, after winning three straight state title games and. The emotion in that piece was, you know, it came through. It was very deeply felt. And you wrote about the senior class, these um, young women that you've been following for their entire high school lives. Josie Becker, uh, Kaylee Jones, Cassidy Sherman. And at the end of the piece, you talk to Cassidy Sherman in particular, and she talks about how, you know, losing sucks. Um, And you gave her a hug uh, at the end of the interview. And that's how the piece closes. It's not a traditional gamer. Um, has it been kind of unusual for you to step out of the, the kind of, you know, more dispassionate sports writing um, and game, you know, recapping that you've done over your career? Well, it's it's very different. You know, what I've tried to give them my best. I got to say that to begin with. I don't treat, I don't take it any less seriously than I took writing about the Super Bowl. To me, it's. I learned a long time ago as a newspaper guy that that sometimes when a newspaper reporter interviews a person, it's just another day for the reporter, but it's a very special day for the subject of the interview. So I look at every every Lady Potter's game as something that those people will want to remember, and I also, as you point out. You know, it's I put myself in these more than I would ever have put myself in anything else, because after all, it is girls basketball. You know, it's girls high school basketball. You know, they're not professionals. They're not semi-professionals. You know, they're in this case, they're they're young women trying to be as good as they can be. This team in the last four years is 131 and 10, so they're very good and. Had they been 10 and 131, I might not be having that much fun. Let's be clear to people who may not be as familiar with your career as as Josh and I are, that this is effectively a retirement gig for you. You don't need to be doing this. You are 76 years old. Your career began um, at a major newspaper in 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. There is a lovely randomness to your words depicting the doings of a small high school girls basketball team in Illinois. And to me, it, it shows that, as you alluded to just now, Dave, that there is meaning and there is beauty and there is the ability to write a compelling 800-word column about almost anything in sports. I mean, you've covered everything that a sports writer in America who's been alive since the 1960s could have possibly covered and here you are doing this because you need to write and you want to keep writing. I, I really loved the bit in the ESPNW story where an 86-year-old fan introduces to you to her nephew as David who writes the website. Right. Does it feel a little bit like you're in like a witness protection program here? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it is different. It's great. I sit in the third row of the bleachers surrounded by what I've come to call my geriatric fan club. You know, they're various grandmothers of players, and uh, they leave me alone. They see me taking notes. You know, in fact, the first time I went to a, a Lady Potter's game, 
had my reporter's notebook and two pens. You know, always have another pen ready. Uh, I opened the notebook and I didn't know what to do. You know, I'd been, as you said, everywhere. You know, if you go, it's easier to cover a Super Bowl than it is to cover a Lady Potter's basketball game, because at the Super Bowl they have high-powered, big bucks people telling you everything, giving you everything. At a high, at a girls' high school basketball game, you got to figure it out for yourself. So I opened my notebook, and I didn't know what to do next. And then I remembered, I drew a line down the middle of the page. I put the Morton play-by-play on one side, the opponent's play-by-play on the other side. And then I remembered how I remembered that, because that's the way that I first did it at the Bloomington Daily Panagraph, you know, a lifetime ago. And so this has been... For me, I mean, I heard Bob Costas once say that he wished that he could go back and and call minor league baseball. Well, I wanted to believe Bob, but I don't think you could walk away from whatever millions of dollars he was making and do minor league baseball. But that's what I've done. You know, I don't need the money. I don't need, I have time to do it. And as you said there a minute ago, writers got to write. So a little more than two years ago, your wife had a stroke, um, and you decided after after that um, to keep going to the Lady Potters games, right? Yes, I was in the hospital. She was in the hospital for two weeks, first 72 hours. It was life or death. She survived that. Um, and after two weeks, one of the players' mothers told me I needed to go to the games. I didn't know if I wanted to go to the games or not. Uh, so I went, and I haven't missed one since. My wife, before the stroke, went with me to every game for five years, and that was unlike my previous life as a big-timer. She never went with me anywhere except to the Super Bowl. You know, and So it was always fun in that sense. And, and uh, what I've done with, with the girls' basketball team now is really – you know, to to be completely hyperbolic about it is saved my life. It's it's not that I was about to die, but I wasn't sure I wanted to keep on living. So it's that's important. It saved my writing life. You know, I'd had nothing to do, no job. You know, okay, I'll do this, and it turned out to be fun. It was it's a different way of writing, actually. It's a, I use a different set of imaginations to do it. And uh, it's been instructive in that sense. I would kind of wish I had figured this out 30 years ago. Uh, but I'm still learning. This is a really remarkable convergence of so many different things that are great about sports. Just the sense of community that you've been able to find with this team and in this town. But also, as you alluded to in your first answer, just that these girls are, you know, compared to, you know, when you first started out sports writing, it's like there's this whole enormous group of people that are having the opportunity to participate in sports and and improve themselves through sports. And so there is just the kind of like beautiful full circle-ness here to this to this project and, and what you're doing and what you're getting out of it too. There absolutely is. I mean, I've said before that I think the, the greatest thing that's happened in sports in my time, and my time, let's say, is from 1959 on, the greatest thing that's happened in sports is Title IX. You know, it's opened up, 
you know, for fifty-two percent of the population to to uh, learn what sports can give you, to learn the, the the value of competition, of teamwork, of 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 unselfishness, you know. And the thing that that I like about it particularly is that you can see, and and I saw it in these the seniors that you mentioned, Cassidy Sherman. Cassidy Sherman is five foot two. You know, she was maybe four foot two the first time I saw her as a seventh grader. Just watching them grow in, in confidence, in confidence and in maturity. Uh, that's the great thing about high school. You know, I, I don't see it, you know, I don't go to boys' games. I don't go to boys' games because the boys always seem to be posturing and whining and uh, pretending they're LeBron when they can't even dribble. You know, and, and the girls don't do that. You know, there's no whining, no pouting. You know, they're out there having fun and they're playing well. The coach, the coach is Bob Becker. He preaches humble swagger. He wants them to have confidence in themselves without flaunting it. And uh, so they do it with class and elegance and grace. And I always feel better uh, having seen them play. They're kind of a model for life. Dave, you've written three books about the girls to commemorate those state championship seasons. They are, look to be self-published. They're on the website. They sell for ten bucks. Um, not for the for the for, for you're not trying to to reach a big audience here. It seems like they're for the girls in the community, and I imagine for you too. Do you have the itch to write a mainstream book about this team after these years now? Um, because I'm sure there is one. I mean, Madeline Blaze did that lovely book in these girls. Hope is a muscle. That's been twenty years now. Um, or is it just enough to do what you're doing here? You don't need the agents and the deadlines and the publicity tour. Well, it is enough to do what I'm doing. You know, I like it. It's been good for me. And at the same time, I would like to do a mainstream book. And in fact, I'm trying to work on a proposal. Excellent. You know, I've interrupted my work on a proposal to talk with you guys. You know, I think there's a story there. You know, I I think what what Tony Rehagen did is kind of the framework of, of a story, and I certainly know a whole lot more than than I could write there, or I have written in any of these books. The, the books have been uh, basically kind of fan annual kind of things. You know, I, I write maybe new twenty thousand words in them, um, and, and what I've done I've done those really, and told all the girls that they should buy ten of them because they're going to lose them by the time they have grandchildren, <laughs> and they'll want their grandchildren to have it. You know, so I don't sell many of them, and I don't care about that. I like doing them, and uh, I would like to do a, a real book, uh, kind of a memoir of, of this time, where I would use my 50 years as a, as a big-timer, as backdrop to finding, going home, just going home. This is going home for me closing the circle, you know, and uh, uh, the girls have been a, a huge part of that. So obviously one really important thing to do in any journalism is to tell the truth. And there is kind of an interesting issue there because in a lot of these games that you're writing about, um, you know, the the potters are blowing these other schools out just because they're so much better. I mean, you're get some incredibly lopsided scores. Do you have um, a philosophy around how to describe um, blowout victories in girls' high school basketball where I think 
you do want to accurately say what's happening, but you also, I, I think there's more of a responsibility to like, you know, these are not professional players. You don't want to make anybody look or feel bad. Like, how do you think about that issue? I don't go there looking to be critical. I go to every game trying to find one of my theories on sports writing is if you really pay attention, if you pay attention, and if you paid attention for a long time, you're going to see something in every game that you've never seen before. You can go to a girls' high school basketball game and you'll see something you've never seen before. I will write about that. What's an example of, of one of those things? Um, well, I sometimes have written about getting lost on the way to the game. <laughs> you know, I've never done that in the big time. I always manage to find my way to the arena. But out here in the boondocks in Illinois, I'm driving in the middle of the night and have no idea where the town is. I finally find the town and find the high school. Uh, I don't know, last year the coach split his pants twice. <laughs> you know, the, the assistant coaches gathered around him so as to not let his embarrassment be seen to the world. You know, it's, uh, uh, there's always something. Dave, before we let you go, I wanted to, to I wanted to quote a couple things that you wrote in a couple of your books. Uh, your first big paper job was you were, was in Louisville at the Courier Journal. You were 24 in 1965. You got to know Muhammad Ali. You covered 17 of his fights. You went on to write a book about Ali and his relationship with Howard Cosell, the broadcaster, called Sound and Fury. And you lead that book with an anecdote about interviewing Ali under the covers in his hotel room bed. And you wrote, I saw him naked. I'm not sure I ever saw him clearly. And then many years later, a few years later, not many years later, a few years later, you wrote a book about the Washington Post where you worked for a long time. And it's about a newspaper in transition in the Internet age. And you wrote, I love the smell of newsprint in the morning. And my favorite time of day is 30 minutes to deadline. And this was before Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and has worked a, a, a sort of revival you call that book Morning Miracle. I feel like these two threads go together with what you're doing now. Do you feel like you see sports more clearly than you did when you were covering it on the Daily Hustle? Um, and is this a way of you getting that rush of newsprint in the morning and 30 minutes before deadline? Yeah, there's no doubt of that. You, you, you miss that. You know, I have no deadline, but I create deadlines. There is still that. There's still the, the thrill to me of, of seeing an event and repeating it, reporting it, you know, letting people see the picture, feel, feel the arena. You know, one of the things, one of the problems with you know, the mega events and big-time sports is that the spectacle has become the game. The game becomes secondary to the spectacle, to the experience. I never liked that. I always wanted to find the beauty in the game, not in the experience. And, and it's so much easier at a girls' high school basketball game because there is no experience. You know, there's no halftime extravaganza. There's, there's no commercials. There's no media timeouts. You know, there's, there's really nothing at stake. There's no great reputations at stake. It's just a game. And uh, in that game, the, the great values still exist. Dave Kindred covers the Morton Lady Potters basketball team in Morton, Illinois. He's also one of the greatest sports writers of my and our generation. Dave, thank you so much for, for joining us. 
Well, thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Josh. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls and the Paralympics are going on. Danningber. Um, our guest host did a really interesting segment on them a few weeks ago and wanted to mention one of the results. Just as Stefan, the U.S. women's hockey team, beat Canada in the Winter Games in Pyeongchang, the U.S. men's Olympic sled hockey team defeated, dreaded, Canada in the Paralympics. Suck it, Canada. It's a great game. Winning goal in overtime. Uh, it was a 2-1 final. And uh, there was also a late goal in regulation, even send it to overtime. Um, the guy that mm-hmm. scored the winning goal for the Paralympic sled hockey team was Declan Farmer. What can you tell us about Declan, Stefan? 20 years old. He's from Tampa, Florida. Uh, Princeton undergraduate studying economics. Uh, He was born a bilateral amputee, tried sled hockey in 2006. At 14, he made the U.S. national team. Damn. He assisted on the game-winning goal at the Paralympic Games in Sochi in 2014. He had an ESPY award, best male athlete with a disability in 2014. He also likes fantasy football, reading Game of Thrones, hanging with friends, and watching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Lightning. Declan Um, Farmer. American hero. I'm not like a huge fan of those hobbies, to be honest, but like, you know, two gold medals. Mm-hmm. I think I'll give them a pass. Like Tampa Bay Buccaneers, whatever. But you'll you'll get yeah. you'll get a pass for, 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 for two uh two gold medals. All right. Well, also Princeton. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's hard, hard to give him a pass for Princeton. Stefan, what is your Declan Farmer? A lot of the talk in the aftermath of UMBC's historic win was about the chess program. The Washington Post called it vaunted. The school president, Freeman Hrabowski, told the paper, people won't just talk about how good we are at chess and cybersecurity now. UMBC, as we discussed earlier, defending champion of the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. Even the UMBC players we're talking about the chess team. Here is UMBC center Nolan Garrity after the Virginia game. I, I did a story a couple years ago about your national champion chess team. Really? Oh, Were you guys like a chess school until yeah. now? Yes. Powerhouse. Powerhouse. <laughs> Don't forget about them either. Just be Virginia. Just be Virginia. Yeah. They're still big. Yeah, they're still big. Okay. Uh-huh. So they laid the foundation for you. Yeah. 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 We, we tried tried the way. We joined the ranks. <laughs> we looked up to them. Some people gave Garrity and his teammates credit for praising the chess team, but you can tell that they're totally goofing here, and frankly, they should be. Because for all of the (laughs) praise, for all of the testimonials about Retriever's chess, let's just tell it like it is, Josh. UMBC chess is in crisis. That's right. After playing in the Final Four of college chess 
for 15 straight years from 2001 to 2015, winning the title six times, coming second six more times. The Retrievers didn't even reach the promised land in 2016 or 2017. And this year, well, at the Pan American Intercollegiate Team Chess Championship, from which the top four finishers advanced to the President's Cup, the Final Four, UMBC's A-team finished 16th. And the B-team? 43rd. Shocking, I know. If this were college football, the coach would be sent on his way with a kick in the ass and a $10 million golden parachute. But no, not at powerhouse UMBC. All puffed up with their 15 seconds of basketball fame, the retrievers suddenly seem content with chess mediocrity, happy to let Webster University in St. Louis dominate them like a queen on Diana Ball. I'm only kidding a little bit here. What's happened at the diverse, brainy, STEM-focused school hard by I-95 is that UMBC has been outspent in a collegiate chess arms race. I talked about this three years ago in an afterball about Webster, which had lured Grandmaster Susan Polgar from Texas Tech with a budget of more than $600,000 plus a dozen full scholarships a year. In 2017, Webster won its fifth straight Final Four and Polgar's seventh straight. If Webster wins again, the Final Four is in two weeks, same as the basketball one. Polgar's eight-peat would, the Webster student paper wrote, elevate her ahead of former UCLA basketball coach John Wooden for the most consecutive championships in history. I checked out the results of the Pan American Championship to see what the problem seems to be at UMBC. The Webster team that finished first consisted of four grandmasters. St. Louis, which finished second, had four grandmasters, followed by Texas Tech with three and Texas Rio Grande with four. Webster's B team had four grandmasters. UMBC, just one grandmaster, Tanguy Ringwar, the Belgium butcher, and one international master, Eva Harazinska of Poland. That is a serious recruiting deficit right there. And like in every other sport, there's one reason for UMBC's chess fade. The administration, quote, has not invested in the program in a way that keeps up with changing times, end quote. That's Alan Sherman, who started UMBC's chess run in the 1990s, speaking to the Washington Post two years ago. I have been warning them about this for many years, and reality has finally caught up, Sherman said. But I detect a master plan here, Josh. Call it a grand master plan. Freeman Rabowski, UMBC's president, claimed all weekend that he didn't know a 2-3 zone from a Sicilian defense. And the mathematician sure demonstrated that in a piece for The Atlantic over the weekend touting the school's backstory, which I mentioned earlier, Rabowski cited as reasons for the upset of Virginia, grit, hard work, staying focused, passion, can-do attitude, rigorous preparation, and hope. Two months ago, UMBC lost to Albany 83-39. Last month, they lost to Vermont 81-53. But I think we might be witnessing some serious three-dimensional chess a little positional sacrifice, if you will, Josh. Follow along here. UMBC quietly builds up the basketball program. It gives Ryan Odom, the head coach, a base salary of $225,000, which is about as much as Susan Polgar appears to be making at Webster. It recruits a player or two who might not have been retrievers in the past, if you get my drift. UMBC demolishes Virginia, gets its week of nerd school beats Goliath national media, and then boom. It takes the NCAA's blood money and steers it where it belongs, 
into the downtrodden chess program. Fans pack the new $90 million campus arena originally built for basketball and watch as UMBC rises from the ashes to slay mighty Webster. Now that would be a shining moment, Josh. Certainly would. Certainly would, Stefan. Josh, what is your Declan Farmer? We just passed the one-year anniversary of an amazing milestone in sports history, the time Madison Square Garden banned in-game music uh, and sound effects for a half of a game between the Knicks and the Warriors, and Draymond Green called it disrespectful. It's one of my all-time <laughs> all-time favorite sports moments. It wasn't just Draymond Green, but Draymond's quotes about it were uh, by far the best. He said it was disrespectful to all these people who've done these things to change the game from an entertainment perspective. Gives the game a great vibe. That's complete disrespect. You advance things in the world to make it better. You don't go back to what was bad. It's like computers can do anything for us. It's like going back to paper. Why would you do that? So it was ridiculous. Well said, uh, Draymond Green. Uh, He should be glad he's not in college basketball anymore for lots of reasons. But one of them is that musical instruments, amplified music, or artificial noisemakers while the game is in progress uh, are an infraction in NCAA basketball. It's in the rule book. Um, the penalty for um, a, a team or a team's fans being caught playing musical instruments, amplified music, or artificial noisemakers while the game is in progress is a technical foul with two free throws awarded to the non-music playing team. Uh, This is something I noticed during the NCAA tournament, uh, that the uh, in-arena entertainment is not really up to uh, the NBA level. And I, for one, agree with Draymond Green. It's disrespectful. Um, You know who else has a lot to say about uh, music and sound effects in NBA games, Stefan? Who? Old white newspaper columnists. What a shock. (laughs) Mike Lupica, New York Daily News, 1980, was the first uh, reference I could find. Because I was trying to look in this afterball for the history of, like, playing sounds during a basketball game, like playing music during the action. I wasn't able to find a satisfying answer. But I was able to find the history of Mike Lupica complaining about it. Um, and just to be fair, in 1980, Mike Lupica was not old. He was white and he was a newspaper columnist. Oh, he was always old. He was an old, he was an old soul. Born old. Yeah. He wrote about how at, the, at Madison Square Garden, where attendance has fallen, they try to jazz up basketball evenings. <laughs> how dare they jazz up basketball evenings with silly sound effects and electronic hands clapping on the scoreboard and tricky organ music. I know what tricky organ music is. You sometimes think you're in the middle of a pinball game. How dare they? Um, but, you know, Mike Lupica, that was like fairly moderate. My, my favorite in this genre was a column by Joe Adelizzi of the Asbury Park Press from 1994. Think back to the Knicks series against the New Jersey Nets when Kenny Anderson, one of the bright young stars of the league, was forced out of his game because Derek Harper kept pushing him away from the basketball without being called for fouls. This is not basketball. It is a perverted form of the game, just as the arenas are no longer basketball courts, but pleasure palaces where fans are mesmerized by mechanical sound effects. 
I have to say the <laughs> orgasmatron at Madison Square Garden is really something to behold. How dare fans have pleasure at games? What kind of hedonism is this? Uh, he goes on, Market Square Arena, the home of the Pacers, plays the sounds of cars racing around the track while the game is in progress. Rock music blares through the houses so loud that you can hardly hear the beer cans open. <laughs> That's my favorite part. It's like, why can't we get back to the authentic sounds of yore, wherein it's just like a soundtrack of drunkenness, the wholesome sound of Miller Lite tabs being popped. There are mascots and dancers and tumblers and marchers, he continues. There are singers and light shows and all kinds of entertainment. Everything except basketball, which is what the NBA was once all about. End it. So he mentions the uh, sound effects, the sounds of cars racing around the track at Market Square Arena. This was actually a topic of much uh, controversy and conversation in the mid-90s. Bill Benner of the Indy Star wrote a column, I think it was in 94, about the Indy race cars, the Hornet Hum, the Milwaukee Laser the Orlando synthesizer, the Atlanta siren. We're talking about sound wars, NBA style. And the Indiana Pacers have no intention of turning down the volume as the playoffs move to the next round. Um, Hawks coach Lenny Wilkins had asked um, for them to turn down the sound, asked if there was any league rule against the race car noises. Apparently there was not. But in 1995, in October, the league um, did... Institute new rules. And so if Draymond Green is talking about being disappointed about and how it's disrespectful to the entertainment innovators, he should realize like before his day, there were way more sounds like in the early 90s. It was the like heyday, the glory days of NBA and arena sound effects like Draymond Green doesn't know what he's missing. Like some of the things that were outlawed were um, before 1995, the Pacers and other teams were allowed to play the race car noises when the other team had the ball. You were allowed to like try to maybe not try to distract the other team. Like maybe they like or maybe try to distract. Maybe they like race car noises, but like shit has been tamped down. Um, you're also like one of the new new rules. I think it was my favorite, my favorite of the of the rules, and and I'll end it here. Is that after October 1995? Sound effects are now permitted after a missed or made free throw, but must cease as soon as the shooter touches the ball again. So I'm trying to think back, Stefan, to like the early 90s when, you know, let's let's imagine you got like Carl Malone at the line. He misses a free throw and then you get and it's just going forever. Like, even as he gets the, the ball again, doi, yo, 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 going. <laughs> this is what we're missing. This is what Draymond Green is missing. And I don't think he realizes it. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. This week, I would like to inform the hangup audience that the Americans... FX's series about undercover spies in the D.C. area. It's back on March 28th for its sixth and final season. That means that Slate's Americans podcast will also return. Every Thursday morning, starting March 29th, host June Thomas will take you behind the scenes of every episode, talking to actors, writers, 
and crew members to explain the hows and whys of the show. Join June every week on the Americans podcast. Hear from showrunners, script coordinators, spies, FBI agents, costume designers, editors, and much, much more. For Stefan Fatsis, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>